this week we are wrapping up our sermon series called Prepared for an Outpouring. And so as I was preparing this, I was like, man, there's been so many good things. If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, like there's been so many good things. And I was thinking like, how long has this sermon series actually been? And so I had to get online and I looked it up. Like this is week eight. Week eight of a sermon series that just looking at prepared for an outpouring. We believe that God is ready to move. We believe that God is moving. And we believe that God has something special and unique in store for our city. And so we've just been asking a few questions uh, of all of us. We've been asking a few questions the last seven weeks. We've been asking questions like, is your schedule prepared Is your schedule prepared? Have you made room in your life to receive whatever outpouring God may have in store? We ask the question, is your heart prepared? Like, are you, have you made a move in your heart to receive whatever outpouring God may have? And last week was absolutely stellar, and I'm not even going to try to summarize what it is. I'm just going to point you back to the website and highly encourage you, if you didn't hear it, go listen to it. Ethan got up and he asked the question, is our wallet prepared for an outpouring? And I'm not going to summarize it. You're just going to have to go listen to it. But it was one of the more powerful sermons that I have heard at least over the last two to three months. It was incredibly impactful as far as, are we ready to be a blessing as God blesses us? It was incredible. And so today we're asking the question, is your neighbor prepared? Is your neighbor prepared? So if you have your Bible, open it up, turn it on, get to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to hang out. I'm going to read our entire passage up front. I'm going to pray and we're going to get to work. All right. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road when he saw him, and he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. God, your word is truth. We believe that your word is truth. You say it is true, so we believe that it is true. You also say in your word, 
That when it is spoken, when it is read, when it is declared, it will not return void. And so God, if it is true that your word is truth, I pray, Father, that the truth that is spoken today would not return void. That whatever message is heard today, that we would be able to leave here and act upon it. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave it here, but that we would take it wherever you're sending us. And just as the Samaritan, as he came across and as he journeyed, God, I pray that we would take our truth, this truth, as we journey in our worlds. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this little first part is kind of like a confession, but not really a confession. So it doesn't have to be like super awkward that I'm getting ready to confess something. So like, like just chill out, but it's going to come off as that. So uh, I was in high school, uh, junior, senior year when I was in high school, I, I felt this call. I felt this prompting. I felt this leading uh, that God was calling me to become a professional Christian. So like when people were like, well, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be a professional actor or musician. Like I was going to be a professional Christian, uh, i.e. pastor. That's a joke. You know, life, that's fine. Um, so I felt this call into ministry, this, this call into vocational ministry. I felt God saying, I want you to be a pastor. And so up to that point, my understanding of how the church kind of functioned, again, student ministry was like, you had to throw this really cool party. You had to throw this really, really good event. And then you had to slap them with a really good sermon, right? So like you get them in, that's really good. Now hit them with truth. And, uh, so that's what I learned. That's, and I think it's, there, there was some validity to that. And so, uh, that's what I had. I went to Bible college. And it became a little bit more mature uh, than slapping them with the Bible. I learned how to interpret Scripture. I learned how to read Scripture for the fullness of what it is. It was an incredible opportunity. I also learned how to uh, map out sermons. Uh, most of that I ignored, but I learned how to map out sermons. I learned how to lead a church service. And so when you have a congregation, legitimately, we talked about what to wear and what not to wear. Uh, and so like, and it was good. I, I really don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think there's a level of presentation. I think there's a level of respect. I think there's all of those things are really, really good. But what I learned was how to organize and how to structure an event and how to lead and how to preach so that people would come back. Again, very good. I'm a very practical person, so if I'm learning something, I have to be doing something with my hands. And so after year three, I pushed pause on my college career, and I moved to Indianapolis, and I started working with a church here. And I, I love that church. I still value I thought about it this week, how much I've taken away from that experience. But what I learned there was an even more mature version of what I knew when I was in high school, and that is you have to create these really engaging environments so that people will come back. There's truth in that, right? Like if this is an, a, an oppressive environment, none of you are coming back. There's truth in the fact that we have to be open. We have to be willing. We have to invite people in. We have to welcome. We have to be good hosts. I learned how to, how to prepare sermons more fluidly, and I, I value that time greatly. Now, as you can see, there's a theme that kind of started back when I was in high school and went all the way through college and went through the years that I was working at a church here in this city. And that is, can you organize something that people will come in and then what do you do on the back end? That's what I understood. So I finished my degree. I, I, I done the, 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 my time at the church is done. So I go and uh, I finished my degree. And then I uh, was invited to come work with a church plant down in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. And so I moved down. This is a church plant on the University of Louisville's campus. Uh, and so I'm there and I begin to experience something that I have never experienced up to this point. 
Nothing was polished. That's a church plant. Uh, Nothing was prepared or planned. That's a church plant. And sermons were very uh, few and far between, or at least they weren't that great. And again, that's a church plant. But what I was tasked with first was not create an environment. What I was tasked with first was not, hey, let's figure out what will be engaging to the students on this campus and let's bring them in and then let's teach them how to follow Jesus. Let's disciple them, which is a good thing, but that's not what I was tasked with. My first task was to go on a prayer walk. And when they tasked me with it, I said, I'm so, I'm, I'm so sorry what on earth do you mean by that? Because that sounds weird, and it sounds like people are going to think I'm weird. So what do you mean by that? What I later found out was that prayer walking is very, very simple. It's simply put shoes on, if you want, you can go barefoot, and then just start walking around the campus. And as you pass by coffee shops, you're just praying for them. Maybe, maybe audibly, but there are times when I'm not going to lie, I didn't do it audibly because I really didn't want to be seen as a weirdo. So like I would just go and I would see people and I would pray for them. I would simply ask, God, you are at work here. I know you're at work here because you're at work everywhere. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill these people that fill these coffee shops? Would you fill these students as they walk to and from class? Would you be doing a work in them that they don't even know is currently happening? And so that's what prayer walking was for me. See, what happened was I was tasked with being a participant, not a spectator. Because all the way up to this point, what it was was build this thing so that people will come and see. And what I was tasked with was now you go. Now you go and you begin preparing the work. But we do this everywhere. It's not just me and my growing up phase. We do this everywhere. Look at social media. I would ask the rhetorical question, how, much of, how many of us are consuming rather than creating? How many of us fall into the trap of just consuming and not creating? We do this at work. It's much easier to watch other people make the decisions that lead to change rather than being a part of the change yourself. We do this with sports and working out. It's much easier to watch someone else and their story of transformation and, and their, their growth. And, and oh man, that's, in, that's incredible. It's much more difficult to actually put the shoes on and you get to work. It's easier to watch someone play football on Sunday rather than pick up the ball and go throw it yourself. We do this with being neighbors. It's much easier to jump on the app and see what the crazy lady down the road is writing about what's going on in the neighborhood. Don't act like you're not doing that because I know for a fact you're looking at, oh, here she goes again. Let's see how this is. Like you're showing people. I know I'm not the only one in the room that's doing that. But it's easier to become spectators as opposed to participants. And the tension that we're going to see happening in our passage today is that we are prone to being spectators over participants. I'm going to set the context for where our passage is. Luke chapter 10. So Luke, or Luke, Jesus has been doing ministry now for a while. There are people that are following him. There are people that are tracking with his message. There are people that are understanding, that are giving their lives over to this new life, this new way of doing things that Jesus talks about. And so at the beginning of chapter 10, there's about 72 people. I'm sure there's a little bit more, but there are for sure 72 because that's what the scriptures say. And so what Jesus says is that, all right, you've studied enough, you've heard enough, now I want you to go and do. And so he pairs them off. He pairs 72 of them off. And then he says, now go 
And he says, we're going to go to these towns here in a little while. I want you to go. I want you to go on a mission trip to these towns. And I want you to prepare the ground, prepare the people for my arrival. And he gives them tasks. Hey, when you get to the city, here's what you're going to look for. Here's how you're going to pray. Here's all the things that you're going to do. That's what's happening at the beginning of this. And when the mission trip starts to wrap up, they all kind of come back. And in verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, this is Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the first thing, before we ever even get to our passage, the first thing that we see taking place is that our identity precedes our activity. Is that who we are precedes what we will ever do. And so what Jesus is saying is they say, I find it incredible because you know how it is. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you always come back like amped up. You always come back ready to hit it. And so they come back and they're like, Jesus, you won't believe what just happened. And he's like playing into it. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He says, behold, I have given you authority. I love this next part. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions that nothing shall hurt you. And then he says, but that's not even the biggest deal. The biggest deal is that your name is written in heaven. He's reminding them that the things of this world do not define you. He's even saying that as you follow me and as you see these miracles happen, it's not because of all of that. It's because your name is written in heaven. It's because you are a son and it is because you are a daughter that you are seeing these things happen. And someone's here today. I've felt it all morning long. Someone's here. The message that you need to hear this morning has nothing to do with our passage. What you need to hear is that you are a son and you are a daughter. And what you need to hear is that the drugs, the partying, the decision-making, the work, the job promotions, the money, whatever those things are that you're trying to strive after to find peace and freedom, those things will not bring peace or freedom. Those things, as Jesus says, are serpents and scorpions. They will squeeze you out and they will sting you and you will be left just to rot. If you're finding yourself there, listen to me. In Christ, you have peace and you have freedom. And with that peace and freedom comes an identity that you are an heir to the throne of God. You are a son, you are a daughter, and what is yours is all the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And I love what happens next. He says, you, in light of that, you can tread on serpents and scorpions. It is in light of that, that the things that choke you out in this world, you can now tread on and you can choke it out. It is in the power in the name of Jesus that you have new life. Your identity precedes your activity. Let's move. Chapter 10, we're going to drop to verse 29. But he, this is the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, 
How many of us are guilty of that, making excuses to justify ourselves? I can't do that because of this. Anyways, desiring to justify himself and to Jesus, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Like, I know them to, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and my neighbor as myself. So who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, I'll go back to what I said from the very beginning of this. I don't believe there is a by chance, but now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Here's what we see happening in this. God has you where you are for a reason. It's not by chance. God has you where you are for a reason. You live in the neighborhood that you live in for a reason. That neighborhood is a very real place. Your neighbors are very real people. These are living, breathing, moving people. These are very, very real. And what we see happening in this passage so often, especially when it comes to scriptures, we can kind of trick our minds into thinking, well, this is way far back then. And so Jesus was kind of this superhero character in some kind of comic book. But Jesus was, in fact, very, very real. He lived in a very real place. He died in a very real place. He rose again in a very real place. Like this this road from Jerusalem to Jericho that he's using in his parable is a very real place. And when we look at it in history and in context, it's actually not that great of a road either. It's actually a really bad road. It's like in the bad part of town, only it's the alley in the bad part of town. The, ro- the rocks are all over the path. And so it's a treacherous road, so it slows people down. And so thieves and robbers naturally flock to where people slow down. So it's not uncommon for people to get robbed. It's not uncommon for people to get beat. This is a very real thing. This is a very real place. He's lying there, half dead. And by chance, a priest, priests are very real. They have an obligation to fulfill. And so his reasoning may be very real. His reasoning for passing by on the other side might be a very real reason and a very real excuse. The same with the Levite, basically an assistant to the priest, very real. And yet it's the Samaritan who is seen as an outcast and like uh, uh, an oppressor against the Jewish faith. And it's seen as like they are not a part of, they are second class. Samaritans are not a part of us. And it's the Samaritan that comes in and has compassion. And the only way lives can be transformed is when someone steps into the messy stuff of life. And this is not metaphorically. This is tangibly. Like this story may not be fully fact, but the place is real and the people are real. And the fact remains that someone had to step into this man's life, otherwise he was going to die on the road from from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so God has you where you are for a reason. And you may be thinking, I'm living where I am because the rent was cheap. You may be thinking, oh, I bought this house years ago because the cul-de-sac is quiet. 
You may be thinking, I, I, I'm living here because I know it's close to work. But God has you where you are for a spiritual, very real reason. He's placed you where you are to get to know your neighbors and be the good news to your neighborhood. Like there's so much ministry opportunity right around you. You don't have to go somewhere else in order to experience this ministry opportunity. It's right next door. It's right around the corner. God has you where you are for a reason. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? See, the priest walked by and he had all his reasons in his head. I can't engage there because of X, Y, and Z. And so he crosses the road and moves on. The Levite had very real reasons in his mind and he didn't have eyes to see, so he crossed the street and continued to move on. The Samaritan also, he's journeying, he's moving on, had very real reasons, but he had eyes to see. And he had compassion and he stepped in to the messy stuff of life. You know what it would look like? This is just two quick examples. Here's what it would look like if we, the church, chose to start engaging with our neighbors, like our actual neighbors, not, not the people down the road, but like our actual neighbors. Here's what it would start to look like. Government agencies and HOAs that fine people for, for lawns that are too high cease to exist. Here's what I mean by that. It's funny, but here's what I mean by that. The lawn is high and hasn't been mowed for a very specific reason. They don't have a lawnmower. Uh, there's a death in the family and they haven't just haven't been able to get to it because when life gets busy, I don't know about you, but I just forget about the lawn. That's just what it is. There's other reasons why that lawn is long. Physically, they're incapable of getting out there to it. So rather than sending a government agency and saying, hey, their lawn is too high, and then you get fined on top of that, the Christian can see, have eyes to see, and they go and they knock and say, hey, I noticed your lawn is high. Is everything okay? Yeah, I'm just too busy. I haven't been able to get to it. Ministry opportunity begins with learning your neighbor's name and then stepping in and saying, hey, you keep doing your thing. I'm going to come over on Tuesday night. I'm going to mow this for you. Like that's ministry opportunity. Maybe they're physically incapable of doing it. And then the ministry opportunity is very clear and very evident to everybody in the room. Another example of this is uh, our community shut-ins. For whatever reason, there are people uh, in, in our city and in our communities, in our neighborhoods, maybe even our next door neighbor, that has to have a government agency come in and just simply check in on them. Knock on the door, make sure they're still alive. You know what would happen if the church chose to start doing that? That government agency goes away. So then we can look at our neighbor and we can say, or the people down the road, we can say, hey, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to check on them on Tuesday. So knock on the door. How are how's everything going? Do you need anything? You want to talk to anybody? I'm here just to listen to all the stories that you have. Do you want me to go to the grocery for you? That's what checking in. That's what having eyes to see the opportunities that are in front of you. God has you where you are for a reason. Let's pick back up in chapter, or chapter 10 still, but in verse 34. He went, this is talking about the Samaritan. He went on, or he went to, went to him and bound him up, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal. That means he's walking now and this man is riding on the animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus asked the question, <clears throat> 
which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And so what's happening in this last section is that the Samaritan is stepping in. This relationship becomes a little bit more intimate rather than recognizing who's standing outside the car window next to him and throwing a couple bucks. He's shutting the car off. He's getting out of the car. He's sitting down and saying, hey, talk to me about what's going on. He's stepping into the mess. He's stepping into the uncomfort. And he's saying, how can I provide for you? He heals. He's, he's bounding him up. He's bandaging all of these wounds. And then he's going to take care of him even beyond that. Hey, let me, get you, let me get you off of the street real quick. Let me take you over to the shelter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy you a week. I'm going to buy you a month's worth of food. I'm going to provide for your needs for just a little while. And if it costs anything extra, just let me know. I'm going to pay for that as well. It's stepping in to the mess. That's what the Samaritan is doing. And so often what this passage gets used for and applied to is, yes, our neighbors are all around us. And in order to serve the least and lost of these, we need to go to some other third world country and we need to feed the starving kids in that third world country. And that's good. We should. That, that application is not false. That's one thing that we absolutely should do. But maybe the application is a little bit more simplistic for us. Like I think taking time off of work, spending thousands of dollars to go overseas to do construction and build a, a schoolhouse that we have never, no idea, no one's ever actually built a schoolhouse, and then to feed the starving kids in some third world country. To me, that's like graduate level neighboring. That's like advanced neighboring, because that's a lot in those things. Maybe what we need to do is kind of go back to kindergarten real fast, like just today. Maybe we need to go back to like uh, neighboring 101 and start learning what the foundations of what it means to be a neighbor. Because the, the passage starts with the lawyer saying, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds to this entire question through a story. And he says, here's how to neighbor. I'm not going to tell you who, I'm going to tell you how. And so what I want to do for the rest of this time is I was just going to, to, I want to apply all of this. And so the third thing that we see drawn out of this is being a good neighbor begins with learning their name. Begins with learning their name. And so for the next little bit, I'm just going to like, I'm going to take the bar, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to take the bar from here. And I'm going to drop it all the way down to here. It's going to be so low that you can't step over it, but low enough that you can't go underneath of it. Like, it's not going to be graduate level. We're going kindergarten here, okay? So we're going to do a pop quiz. You don't have a choice, so get over it. You can mumble and grumble all the way. We're all going to do this. Uh, I got this chart. It'll be on the screen. So I got this chart uh, from a website and an organization called The Art of Neighboring. And so what this chart does is it kind of puts you right in the middle. It'll get there. Uh, what this chart does, it's also effectively known as the chart of shame. And so I made the joke to uh, the team this morning that I plan on shaming everyone this morning. That's always my goal. No. So what I want you to do in this pop quiz, you have you right there in the middle. And if you need to actually write it, you can actually write it, or you can do it in your brain, or you can do it in your notes app, whatever you want to do. You are right there in the middle. That's your house. That's where you live. That's your apartment. That's your condo. Wherever you live, that's you. What I want you to do 
is I want you to write down the name of every single neighbor that's directly around you. So the eight neighbors that you have that surround you, I want you to think, no, I forgot to lay the groundwork. You cannot, because I just saw it happen, you cannot talk to the person you came with. If it is your spouse, you cannot say, hey, what's, what's so-and-so's name? That's not what we're doing here. This is you. Who do you know? So I want you to write down their names. I want you to think about their names and figure out, can you get the eight people that live directly beside you? Now, as you think through that, cat lady is not a name. You cannot use that as a name. That's not how you would refer to her. So don't use that. So what are their actual names? If you got that, there's a second question. The second question is, write down a fact about them. Now, something that you know about them that you can only know by actually talking to them. So they drive, he drives a red sports car. That's not a fact. That's just an observation. Like, I want you to write down a fact. What, where do they work? How many kids do they have? What, like, all of those things. Maybe you know how many kids because they're running around everywhere being terrorists to the entire neighborhood. I don't know. But, like, you can only know this by talking to them. So what's their name? Give me a fact about them. And the last thing I want you to write down or take a note of is what is their spiritual condition? Now, I know that's a, that's a heavy, heavy question. What I actually mean is, what's their motivation in life? Like, what are they living for? So what's their name? What's a fact about them? And what is their driving force in life? Now, I want you to actually write this down. So a quick poll as you're doing that. How many, show of hands, like we're just going to, we're going to step into this all together, all right? Show of hands, how many people got all eight? One? Yeah. So from my studies, from what I learned, that's about five, we'll say 10% of the room. And so what I learned is this, this organization, this art of neighboring organization, they've done this everywhere they go. That's the same result that they have. Five to 10% of whoever they're talking with know and can do all eight, which is why it's effectively known as the chart of shame. So the call is to love your neighbor. And all I'm simply asking you to do is to know their name. Like I want you to get to know your neighbors on a whole new level. Like I want you to engage with your actual neighbors I want you to know their name. I want you to know something about them. I want you to know what gets them up in the morning. What is their motivation? What drives them? I want you just to simply know your neighbor because if we believe that there is an outpouring prepared for our neighborhoods and our cities, we will never see, they will never see how that outpouring is, how it is applied and how it impacts without ever actually knowing their name. What do we do with this? What is, the, what is the truth behind all of this? It's a scheme of Satan to try and prevent you from becoming a, becoming a practical example of Christ's love. 
It is a scheme of Satan to prevent you from becoming a participant. It is a scheme of Satan to come up with all these reasons and excuses, to not have eyes to see, to only be a spectator of what's going on. It's a scheme of Satan to prevent you from being a participant in the work of God's mission. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote it. It's an incredible book. Basically what you have is you have a guy that has uh, committed his life to Jesus. He said, I'm going to turn from my old ways. I want to live in this new life. And the book is written from the perspective of the demons trying to prevent him from living in that new life. And so it's like a mentoring book. There's an older demon that's mentoring the younger demon. And the younger demon is working against this man to try to get him further and further away from God. And there's a portion of the book that says this. This is the older talking to the younger. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Get your mind around that. As long he doesn't, as long he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let him wallow in it. Let him write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the heavenly father plants in a human soul. Do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm the cause of evil if it is not kept out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. In the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And so what the demon is trying to convince the younger demon to pull this guy away is just make him believe that being a spectator is good enough. Let him write a book about his new repentance. He's still not doing anything with it. Like, let him believe that all of these good things that he has going on is actually something impactful and is him living in his new repentance. Let him do those things and it will prevent him from ever actually living out his faith among his neighbors. Let him think that going to church is just good enough of living that new life of repentance rather than learning his neighbor's names and engaging with the world around him. The lie of the evil one are all the reasons we come up with not having, uh, to, not, to not have eyes that see. The lie of the evil one are all the excuses we give. Well, I can't, I can't invite them over on Tuesday nights because Tuesdays are my long days at work. I typically have all this other, that's a lie to prevent you from getting to know your neighbors. Well, I can't engage there because uh, the kids are coming to the house that night, and so I can't invite them over because the kids, I don't know what to do with all the kids. That's a lie. To prevent you from getting to know your neighbors. I can't go down the street and talk to that lady because I don't really have anything in common with her. What do I, as a single young man, have in common with an elderly uh, widowed woman? What do, what, do, what do I have to offer? That's a lie from Satan to prevent you from stepping in and participating in the mission of God. They're all lies. And the priest and the Levite had very legitimate reasons and excuses. And they also didn't have eyes to see that God had placed them where they were for a very specific reason. 
And Jesus ends all of this and says, what made that person, what made the Samaritan a good neighbor? It was the one that showed mercy and compassion. We can't show mercy and compassion without stepping into the mess and without getting to know our neighbor's names. There is more life to be lived as a participant rather than a spectator. And so here's what I want you to do with all of this. I'm going to make it unbelievably practical, okay? There's only two things that I want you to do in light of what we've talked about. The first one, I want you to start taking prayer walks. I want you to like put your shoes on and say, I'm just going to walk. Even if it's just around the eight people closest to you, just get on the sidewalk and begin prayer walking. Here's how you do that. Shoes on, start walking, pay attention to the house you're walking by and begin praying about the, praying for the people that live inside the house. You don't have to know their names yet. I just want you to begin walking. I want you to pray, God, I believe there is an outpouring prepared for the people in this house. I believe that you have something in store for the people in this house. And so, Holy Spirit, would you fall on this house? And would you begin to work in them? Would you begin to stir up in them? And then I want you to start praying for an opportunity. This is all in one walk. So as you pray for them to be prepared for the outpouring, God, would you provide an opportunity for me to get to know their name. That's number one, start prayer walking. Number two, here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn your neighbor's names. That's the two application points. I want you to prayer walk and I want you to learn your neighbor's names. I want you to have eyes that see that as you're prayer walking, as you're walking down the street and you see your neighbor walking to their mailbox to get their mail for the day, you jump for joy internally because there's your opportunity. Hey, I've lived here for like 15 years. You've lived here for 15 years and I don't know your name. My name is so-and-so. Just learn their names. Our neighborhoods, we, we, we pray and we talk about constantly seeing our city and our neighborhoods transformed by the work of God. And I've said it enough and I'll say it again. Our cities will never be transformed without ever getting to know our neighbors' names. That's the application. Take some prayer walks, get to know your neighbors' names. And I'm convinced that that will change our outlooks. We will begin to care for our neighbors. Let's pray. God, you're good. And I trust wholeheartedly that the simple act of walking and praying and the simple act of getting to know our neighbors' names is stepping into the mission that you have been on since the beginning of creation. The mission of redemption, the, the mission of new life. I firmly believe that your desire for us is to simply get to know our neighbor's names. God, I pray that as we do this, transformation would fall on our neighbor's would fall on our neighborhoods, would fall on our city. 
God, may we be people that are prepared for an outpouring and may we be people that are leading our neighbors to being prepared for the outpouring that you have in store for all of us to live in this new life that you've been on a passionate pursuit to give to us. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray, amen.